If Brother Isaac Howe was here, he would say that's incorrect. It is the fourth psalm. Starting here in verse number one, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing Selah? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time, of, in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us this evening, Lord, that you'll hear the request that was lifted up before you. We here this evening lifting up these requests before you, Lord, because we have a confidence in who we're praying to. We have a confidence in your character, in the God we serve. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us this evening as we flesh out this word. Be with me, Lord, as I uh, seek to apply this text to our hearts. Thank you for all that you've done. Be with the teachers next door in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It was said that the daughter of the, an elementary school had found herself in trouble one day. She had done something she was not supposed to do, and the teacher corrected her. The girl ended up ignoring the teacher's correction to her and continued to do that which had got her in trouble. The teacher feared that the daughter of this young girl had not heard her correctly, so she squatted down and got eye to eye with the little girl and told her, if she, and threatened her, if she didn't change her behavior, she would find herself in trouble. The little girl looked back up at the teacher and said confidently, do you know who my father is? You see, the confidence that this girl had was that her father was the principal. You see, it made her believe that she had the ability to pull rank over the trouble that she faced. While I think it probably ended poorly for the girl, I sure do admire the confidence that she had in her father. I admire that she believed that her relationship 
with her father had the uh, ability to overcome the trouble before her. You see, Psalms number four is all about having confidence in God. Here, all throughout the entire chapter, David is just singing for joy about the confidence that you can have in the Heavenly Father. Even more than that, he says, not only do I have this confidence, not only does he say I should have this confidence, he says the whole congregation should have the confidence. And even more, he says, this confidence that we have in God should be sung to God, proclaiming this confidence that we have in him. They believe that this psalm was written on the heels of Psalms number three, which is a psalm that was written while David was on the run from Absalom. Yet when you really read this and you think about that, David wrote this while he was on the run from a trouble that had him on the run. What strikes us about this chapter is really verse number four, where he, it really captures us when he says, I will lay me down in peace, for only the Lord can make me dwell in safety. I hope that's the kind of confidence that we have as we face problems in our own life. That we say if there's any way for ourselves to find Rest in the trouble that we are facing. It is because God has given it to me. Notice not only does the psalmist say that we can have confidence in the character of God. And really God's character should bring confidence to us. But he, again, the context of this psalm, he says, is coming from a man who is on the run. But notice also the call of this psalm. Underneath Psalms number four in my Bible, depending what your kind of Bible you have, it says to the chief musician on Neganoth. You see, as I said, the psalmist's confidence was that not only should we sing about heaven, not only should we profess that we have confidence in God, but this is something that should be sung about in the church house. He put the pen to the paper and said, here, here to the chief musician. Make sure that when everybody gathers together, that we can sing about how much confidence we can have in God. That we should sing about how God delivers us. We should sing about the times that he's rescued us in times past and the confidence that we have that he's going to rescue us in the near future. This is something that we should not only say aloud, but this is something that we should encourage each other with, that we can have confidence in God. Matter of fact, the encouragement for us to gather together in worship is the reality of this text. When you think about it in this aspect, what is worship? Worship in the congregation is when we all gather together and get our eyes in the right direction. It is when we gather together with the same song of praise about the God in whom we all serve. But you see, the problem is when you arrive at the house of God, 
and you're looking at each other instead of looking at the right direction, looking to God, singing about God, praising God for the confidence that we have in him, a downward spiral begins to happen. We begin to look at each other and we say, well, we're serving the same God, but how in the world is this person blessed? And we're both serving the same God and you're doing this for them, God, but you're not doing this for me. Worship is deconstructed when we look at each other instead of looking at him. I don't know if you've ever uh, rented or you can buy this book for 99 cent on Amazon Kindle, but there's an author who, his name's G.W. Target. He writes essays. G.W. Target wrote an essay, and one of the essays is called The Window. The Window is an essay about two men who stay in a hospital room. <laughs> and as they're sitting in the hospital room, Every day, the man who sits closest to the window, he's suffering. He can't breathe. He has a pulmonary problem. So every day, the doctors would come in and prop him up and sit him up straight. And as they sit him up straight, he could see out the window. And as he would look out the window, he would begin to tell his roommate who he had become so close to. They talked about friends. They talked about family. They talked about where they grew up. They, they shared so much with each other. But as the man would be propped up so he could get air, he would begin to explain the view to the guy who's in the room with him. He would tell him about this little lake that was down there in the yard and how kids were playing around it and how he would say that there was a married couple down there just enjoying their walk, kids playing with dogs, and he just painted the most beautiful scenes to his dear friend who could not get to the window. Well, before long, envy had set in in the man who could not get to the window, and he began to wonder in himself what makes him so special that he gets to sit next to the window. What makes him so special that he gets to see all these things and I do not? Well, one night, the man who peered out the window began to choke in his sleep. The man who was far from the window but ate up with envy heard him. Back and forth in his mind raced whether he should just push the button and call for assistance, to which he would not. The next morning, the doctors would come in and find his beloved friend dead. They would roll him out of the room, and before long, the man who was ate up with envy would begin to asked the doctors and the nurse if it was all possible to move him next to the window so he would no longer be ate up with envy, to which they obliged. They rode him over to the window, and before long, he had a new roommate in the room with him, and he was excited to fulfill the thing that he dreamed of to begin to paint the portrait for his roommate of what he's seen out the window. That evening, when his new roommate was there, they began to become acquainted, and the doctors had left the room, and the nurses had left the room, and the man who was ate up with envy was so excited. For the first time, he raised his bed up and peered out the window and was completely struck by what he saw. 
as he looked out the window, the only thing he seen out the window was a solid wall of white bricks. There was nothing to be envious of at all. This is the same thing that happens to each and every believer when you arrive at the house of God looking in the confidence of what other people have versus coming here and arriving and taking confidence in God that though your situation is different than someone else's, God is still in control. That God is going to work all of this out. That yes, you're facing a trouble. Yes, you're facing a struggle. Yes, you're facing a trial. But if you will just take confidence in God, if you will just trust God, you will see that he will bring victory in your life. And envy over your peers is a dangerous thing to be involved in. You may just arrive there and find out it's not what it seems. Even more, look at verse number one. David says, you want to have confidence in God? Do you want to have a relationship with God where you can just feel confident that everything is under control? He says in verse number one, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. I hope you've seen it. Did you see it? David says, if you want to have confidence in God, it's twofold. First thing is, when you find yourself in a moment of distress, David prayed. Oftentimes, I believe that we pass by that like it's just something minimal. Well, of course I prayed about it, but what else am I supposed to do? David said, I prayed about it. It is the first step and it is the second step. But the reality is when you are facing problems, your confidence that you proclaim that you have in God is made manifest about your first step you do after you begin to face a problem. See, confidence in God means when I face a problem, I immediately turn to him as the solution. I turn to him immediately that he is the answer. He is not the afterthought. He is the thought of the matter. He says, when I call. I love how he follows up in this verse. Hear me when I call. Oh, God of my righteousness. This is the only time that this is used in the manner that isn't used in the entire word of God. He said, oh, God of my righteousness. This is something sweet that he is proclaiming here. Sometimes and there are times in my home when I see my kids do something that irritates me. I mean, it'll just drive me up a wall and I will quickly correct them. And at times I will even challenge them, where in the world did you learn that from? And Lauren will quickly respond and say, they learned it from you. What she is implying to me is that this trait 
that is in them. This thing that they do, it's not organic with them. It derived from me. David says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David is saying, my righteousness is not organic from me. It derived from you. I was not righteous without you. I can never be righteous without you. But you alone is the one who made me righteous. He is the God of my righteousness. I am righteous because God has made me that way. He says, hear me to the God who made me even see that I was in desperate need of God. To the God who showed me that I needed him and then made me righteous in return. He said, when I was in distress, meaning distress you could translate when I was in a tight spot, when I was facing this trouble in my life, when I was facing whatever thing that was going on, maybe in the mental, maybe in the physical, maybe in the spiritual. He said, when I faced this distress, you enlarged me. It was you who came through and made me bigger than any problem that I could ever face. Even more, he goes on to say, David knew that he, he knew that he didn't deserve any help from the Lord, but he prayed on the basis that God had been merciful and gracious to him in times past. He, he prayed on the basis that he did not deserve God's mercy in the first place, but when he came to God in prayer, look what he does in verse 1. He prayed on the basis that God didn't have to answer his prayer this time because he viewed himself as unworthy. But he also says, but God, you've been a God who's answered unworthy people's prayer in times past. He says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. It is to say that he faced a problem in which he was distressed about before and God brought him through and he's saying, I know again in my own heart that though I'm facing another problem of distress, you can bring me through again. He says, hear my cry, hear my call, O Lord. He said, I have never forgotten that you have enlarged me over my problems. You know, really, I guess you could say that that's what makes believers unique, right? This is what makes us live in a unique way, that we recognize that God has made us bigger than our problems, that God has delivered us from our Troubles that God has delivered us from our tribulations. It says that one day that there was a story, a guy said that there was one day there was two men on the beach. One man was walking in the beach and one man was 
laying on the beach. And as the man was going through the water, he accidentally and did not recognize that there was a cliff where the water got deep. He slipped off into the deep water and began to scream in panic. Help, help, I'm, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, help, help. I can't swim. The man on the beach hollered to the man who was drowning. He said, I can't swim either, but you do not hear me complaining about it. The reality is, is that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that the believer has recognized the great distress they were in without God. They recognized the, the trouble that they were in and that they indeed needed a, a deliverer. The difference is, is that we have recognized God's great grace, which makes us return customers. <laughs> when we recognize where God has delivered us from, when we recognize what God has done in our lives, it is just foolishness to not return to the God who's done something that no one else can do. So David says, be in my distress, you helped me. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. I have a follow-up request, Lord. I desperately need your help. Based on his belief that God had this all under control, you can see how this continues to pour out in verse 2 and 3. Oh, ye sons of men, how long will ye Turn my glory into shame. How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? Meaning lion. Selah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. <laughs> oh, this is David, so to say, chiding the enemy. This is David pushing back on the enemy. You recognize in David's life when David committed this sin with Bathsheba that God had sent the prophet Nathan to deliver the news to him that his own house would be torn apart that his own house would betray him and his people in his nation knew the prophecy that Nathan had put forth. And they said, well, you're getting what you deserve, big guy. This is exactly what you had coming. God told you this was going down. You knew you was going to be headed straight for the dumps, David. This is exactly what he was getting to deserve. And while people were saying all of these things, that's what he says. Um, in that part where he says, how long will they go after vanity and seek leasing? He's like, how long are you guys going to go on lying? I understand that God's hand is upon me, but though he recognized that God's judgment was upon his own life, David still believed that God would hear his prayers. He had confidence in God. There are times that we have to admit to ourselves the things we say, the things we feel, the emotions that we have, the troubles that we face is nobody else's fault but ours. 
They are just the consequences of our own foolish stupidity. It wasn't that God didn't warn us that if we went down this road, this would be the end. We had been warned, and yet we went that way. And while others in the kingdom said, David, you get what you deserve, David said in verse number four, or no, verse number three, the Lord will hear me when I call unto him. David says, say what you will. Say what you will, but my confidence is still in God. He said, how long do you seek to ruin my glory? How long do you seek to ruin my testimony? You think you're ruining my name. You think you're ruining my glory. But you have failed to realize that everything that I have in this life is because God gave it to me. It was God who let me stay on the throne. It is God who blessed our victories. And it's almost as if David turns it to say, and you think you're going to devour me? And you think you're going to tear me to pieces? And you think you're going to bring me to an end? You can even see it there in verse number three. It is the reminder to them all. He says, but know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. It is to say that you guys are sitting here speaking your lies and speaking your ills, but have you failed to recognize that God has set the godly apart for himself? I don't belong to you. There is no destruction coming to me in this time. Yet he recognizes, though. Notice this. He recognizes that just because he is a child of God does not mean he's protected from problems. You're not going to find that in this psalm. Just because he's a child of God doesn't mean that he's not going to stumble and fall. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're, you're not going to ever make colossal mistakes. You are going to make colossal mistakes as you serve the Lord. Satan is interested at the front line, not the bench. And the more you serve the Lord, the more Satan is going to throw out hooks and try to get you to bite the bait and pull you out into sin. But yet, even in this situation that David was in, he, he never thought for one second that why should these troubles ever happen to me? He only believed that God would hear him in the trouble. And so for us, when it seems like we're taking hits on every side, when it seems like we've made colossal bad decisions in serving the Lord, take a note from David. Just because you're serving the Lord doesn't mean that you'll never be uncomfortable. Just because you're serving the Lord does not mean that you'll never lose your earthly riches. Just because you're serving the Lord doesn't mean that your kids will always love you. Just because you're serving the Lord doesn't mean that people will always like you and want to be like you. Just because you're serving the Lord doesn't mean life will always be smooth. The man after God's own heart says it is quite the opposite. Life is far from smooth. But let me tell you what this, 
what David does say. He said, for the child of God who serves the Lord. I can't give you the promise that life will be smooth. But what David gives to every child of God is the promise is that at the end of verse number three, the Lord will hear me when I call unto him. Life may not be smooth. The problems I face may be my problems. I may be what have stirred them up. But the good news is, is that what the promise is, is that at the end of every day, in the moment of every hour, I can pray and God will hear my prayer. This is the encouragement to us all that God will hear our prayer. But then why all the troubles? Why, why all the woes, why all the hits do we take in the Christian life? Why can't we just get saved and be put in a bubble and know what it means to worship the Lord untouched by sin? Why can't we have those Sweet moments, you know, those moments where you've been begging God to work in your life and you see it and all you can do is weep and praise him and thank him for all that he's done. Why can't it just be like that all the time? Because we're afflicted. So why all the woes? Why all the all the troubles? Believe it or not, it helps us in ministry. It really does. They say that. When golf was first invented, that golf balls were originally smooth. But what the golfers had come to find out is that the balls that were scuffed up flew further and was more accurate. So before long, they, the manufacturers of the golf balls began to realize that the golfers were scuffing up the golf balls. And before long, they ended up putting dimples in the golf balls because they'll go longer, it'll go farther, and they'll fly straighter. Why all of the woes in ministry? Why can't life just be smooth because affliction and troubles from the world causes us <laughs> to go back to him, which synergistically works in us to stay the course, to stay accurate, to go the distance. It, when we experience affliction in this life, does it not work in us a longing to get home with him? Does it not make our eyes go from the earthly to the heavenly? Does it not say, well, it won't always be like this. It's here for a while, but one day all of these things will fade away. This is the importance of congregational worship about having confidence in God. This is the importance of just trusting in God. So David steps back and says, the first thing we got to do is we got to get back to praying. The second thing he does is he reminds the enemies, don't you recognize that I've been set apart? Don't you recognize you can't do nothing to me? Yeah, you've roughed me up, but God is still in control. But now David looks back to his friends. 
when David escaped Jerusalem, he had friends back at home that was in the house of God that was still going there to worship. Not all of Jerusalem could flee. So he reminds them here in verse number four, he says, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. David tells his friends back in Jerusalem, the most important thing you could do, first and foremost, is to stand in awe. He, what he's saying is, do not be overcome by your emotions. Don't be overcome that your friend is on the run. Don't be overcome by the fact that your king is on the run. Stand in awe and realize that God is still on the throne. Matter of fact, you could even say this evening, maybe even let me suggest to you this evening, that if we would spend more time in awe, if we would spend more time trembling before the Lord, we would tremble less before others. When we remind ourselves that God is on the throne, the problems of this life become less and less. So David says, your earthly king is on the run, but your heavenly king is on the throne. Stand in awe. And he goes even further. While you stand in awe that God is working. David had confidence that God was working. That's why he could even utter the words, stand in awe. Well, David, what about your kingdom? Stand in awe. Next time you face a problem, stand in awe. Tell those around you, stand in awe. I don't know what I'm facing, but I believe that God is working. He says, stand in awe and sin not. And sin not. Surely his friends had some emotions moving in them. Should we just go ahead and overthrow Absalom? Should we go ahead and sneak in the kingdom as a thief in the night and snuff out his life? David says, hold on now. Stand in awe and let God do his work. And you, when it comes to your own personal life, don't get so caught up in emotions that you do something that God says is a sin. Be angry, the Bible tells us, and what? And sin not. He reminds them that God is still king, that God is still on the throne. He even goes on to tell them, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Whenever I read this portion of be still, for some reason in my heart, it, it connected to verse number seven. Because being still means that you're taking no action, your physical self. Being still means that when you're emotionally down, you're waiting for God to change the emotion within you. Being still means don't engage the enemy, but let God engage the enemy. And look what David says here in verse number seven. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. David said, listen, be still, wait, 
Because I'm telling you, if you'll just wait on the Lord, though you may find yourself in a place of physical running from the enemy, though it may seem like the enemy is increasing, though it may seem, listen, other believers were still in Jerusalem worshiping God, and David was on the run. Recognize your situation is not like everybody else's. Your problems is not my problems all the time. We are prayer warriors together, but can we recognize that each and every one of us face our own battles? Each and every one of us are responsible to commune with the Lord and to talk to the Lord about our problems. So he says, be still. And if you'll just be still and trust God, if you'll just be still and have confidence in God, that's what he offers to them in verse number five. He offers them this grand opportunity to trust in the Lord. He said, if you'll just trust in the Lord, I'll tell you what he's done for me. Though I've been on the run, though people are seeking my life, though I'm doing well just to get Bread from the priest. I'm doing well just to find some meat for my men. He says, let me tell you what God's done. He has put a gladness in my heart. And my joy that I have experienced, this gladness that I have experienced, is more than when my enemy has rejoiced over the time of their great harvest of corn. He said, when the, when the wine was flowing over the pots, when the wine was bursting the sacks, he said, I have more joy in my situation than they have ever had. And though their army is mighty, and though their army is strong, he says, I will lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell and safety. He said, at the end of the day, my own army is after me. My own counselors are against me. I'm cut off from my people. I'm physically cut off from the temple. I'm cut off from my throne. I'm cut off from all of that. And he says, even though I am far from all that, I have all the peace in the world because at the end of the day, David says, I don't believe that that army was protecting me. I don't believe that the cooks in the kitchen was who's kept keeping me fed. I don't believe any of that at all. I believe it is the Lord who's kept me safe all of these years. Colossal bad decisions. Trust in God. Terrible things you're facing, trust in God. Next time Satan, <laughs> next time Satan wants to bring up something in your life to you that you regret. Next time Satan wants to bring up to you something in your life that you're facing right now and that you're troubled with. I encourage you to take the advice from the little girl whose daddy was the principal. Get down eye to eye with the problem and remind your problem. Do you know who my father is? Because we can trust God every step of the way. He's never turned his back on us. 
He never will turn his back on us. We can have confidence in the God we serve. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, for the challenge here to take confidence in you, to trust you, to put our faith in you that you are with us every step of the way. That we don't have to engage because we have a heavenly father who is on the offense. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen us. Order our steps in your word. We give thanks to you for what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 130.